It's a massive problem. The Bible talks a whole lot about sin. One of the questions that arises for us, this side of the cross, those who have been made participants in the new covenant, that God has sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to take on human flesh, to keep all of the laws of God that we would not and could not keep, to die in our place as a substitute, bearing the wrath of God, that He might offer to us by free grace, received by faith, His righteousness, and take upon Himself our sin, which is not fair. The Gospel is nothing about fairness. It wasn't fair that the Lord Jesus bore our sin and became our substitute. It wasn't fair that we have access to His righteousness. Then He rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death, to grant us the hope of eternal life. This, this is the Gospel. Those of us who have trusted Jesus have been made participants in that. And this question arises, how do, we, how do we talk about sin? How do we deal with sin? There are some faith traditions that would teach, that would bring up this sort of notion that once you come to Christ, you have the possibility of reaching some sort of Christian nirvana where you never sin again, you never struggle again. If we're being honest, we know that that is a pipe dream. So as you know, I sometimes do. We're going to get a little interactive here so that we can know how to deal with this. And, and when we do this, it's always hard, I know, to not be a hand raiser um, because th- then you feel like uh, you're, you're being left out and people are noticing you, which probably just indicates that you're sinful. So here we go. Um, how many of you in the past week have struggled with pride? I mean, probably in more ways than you know. And if you didn't raise your hand either, you've reached some sort of spiritual nirvana that none of us know about, or we need to talk afterward so that you can instruct my heart. How many of you spoke a harsh word to somebody that you knew? How many of you had an evil thought about a person next to you because you know that they're advanced beyond you in some way that you know you should be advancing in? Ooh, that was a hard one, right? How many of you coveted or were greedy in the past week? I mean, more, we could go on and on, right? Jesus does this in the Sermon on the Mount. He makes it very clear that He did not come to abolish the law of God, but in some ways to amplify our understanding of it so that we would see ourselves in it like a mirror and recognize that even if we can, can master the big things, like, like we don't commit larceny, or grand theft auto, that we don't commit treason against our country, like the really big stuff. Maybe we've never cheated on a spouse. But in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere, Jesus amplifies those commands of the law and talks not just about the big stuff, but, but the inward stuff that we, we tend to dismiss. We tend not even to notice the, the subtle stuff. Like, I hope none of us here have committed manslaughter. It's a terrible sounding word, right? Manslaughter. Hopefully none of you have done that. But have you ever despised your spouse? Or your neighbor? Or a friend? According to Jesus, in your heart, 
That is no different than actually taking your hand and slaying another. Maybe you've never cheated on your spouse quite literally, but have you ever looked at things with your eyes or imagined things in your mind along those lines? Jesus says it's the same kind of sin. You may never have stolen another one's property, but if you've coveted their goods, you have committed in essence the same sins. And what Jesus does in His teaching is He makes it very clear that all of us are born into sin. And in ways big and small, overt and subtle, we are constantly in danger of offending the God who made us and who deserves our allegiance. John was writing to probably a series of congregations in and around Ephesus who were under threat. Threat primarily of bad doctrine. There were those who had left these fellowships and created other fellowships who were coming to the conclusion that perhaps Jesus Christ had really not been the God-man, that maybe God sent someone down to earth, but maybe He really wasn't a real human and maybe He really wasn't the only source of access back to God. These are the early contours of bad Christology, bad theology of Christ. So even by the end of the first century, there were heresies, bad doctrinal positions that were arising that did not recognize Jesus Christ as the God-man, fully God, fully man. And if He wasn't fully God and fully man, then He could not offer us reconciliation to God. In fact, maybe we don't even need to worry about reconciliation to God because perhaps we're not as bad as everybody makes us out to be. And what John does here in this letter is he clarifies for us that he was an eyewitness to the Lord Jesus, the God-man, who came to reconcile us to God, to become a propitiation, John says, a wrath-bearer on our behalf. And you can imagine, as we've already said over the past few weeks, that if bad doctrine concerning Christ and salvation was arising, that other things would follow, like dominoes. If we really don't need to be reconciled to God through His Son, the Lord Jesus, then perhaps it doesn't really matter how we love. And here's the connection. If He doesn't demand my allegiance and holiness if I somehow can, can rise up to Him through my own moral efforts, then He doesn't get to make the rules. I, I get to make my own rules. I get to be the captain of my own destiny. I get to choose what I want to do. And apparently, in and around Ephesus, John was dealing with people who not only taught wrong things about Christ, but they were setting aside the the commands of God. They were not following what He wanted them to do. And likewise, what inevitably arises when we set our own course, when we do our own thing, when we make our own rules, is inevitably when the vertical is messed up, my worship of God, when I ignore that, guess what happens to the horizontal? That is invariably connected and messed up as well. Because here's what happens. When I don't, out of humility, serve God with all of my heart, 
what I end up doing is comparing myself to you. If only Jesus can reconcile me to God, and that's pure free grace, then I can live with you in humility. But if I somehow can contribute to my salvation, then what inevitably ends up happening is I become a prideful person that treats you like a commodity. I can find things I'm better at than you. And of course, you can find things that you're better at than me. But if you get the gospel wrong, you get vertical worship wrong, and you get horizontal love wrong. They are interconnected. And this is why John wrote this letter. To help these churches in and around Ephesus to remember who Jesus was. The one who would come to reconcile them to the Father, to restore them to vertical worship, to being able to obey the commands of God, and then to loving one another from pure, humble hearts. And here in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-17, through 17, this comes on the heels of what Pastor Rick spoke to us about last week in verses 12-14, through 14, where John is very deliberate about affirming these Christians. Let's look back at verses 12-14 through 14, just for the sake of context. I am writing to you, little children, John says, because your sins are forgiven for His namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. A a very affirming passage. And by the way, a great sermon last week. Very good for my heart. So thank you so much, Rick, for taking the positive one and giving me the sin stuff. But... But why does he set the sin stuff up? And we'll read those verses together in just a moment. Why does he set the sin stuff up with affirmation? Is he going to butter them up and then, and then knock them down? No. This is a good model for the way that you should parent. It's a really good model for the way that you should do discipleship with those under your care, whatever ministry you may find yourself in. They were constantly reminding people of the privileges they have in Christ, their identity. And then and only then moving on to exhortation, calling them to growth and holiness. There is a really good author who has suggested that perhaps for every one critique or exhortation that we give to another, there should be ten affirmations that underlie it. How's your ratio going? Probably a lot of us have a lot of work to do there. John goes on in verses 15 through 17, our text for today, to say, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John has taken time in verses 12 through 14 to remind these Christians who they were. They had not been like the heretics with bad doctrine, they had not left the fellowship of the saints. They were holding fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they were seeking to grow in vertical worship, they were seeking to grow 
with humble hearts that loved each other. John thought well of them. And that's why he said what he did in verses 12 through 14. And yet, even those of us who have made much progress in the faith, do we not have so far still to go? By the sheer grace of God, we are not who we were, right? But we are not yet who we want to be. Don't you still do some things that shock you? Perhaps you thought you were well past deceit, but you find in subtle ways that you still pull the wool over people's eyes, or perhaps subtly come across the right way, presenting yourself in a bit of a shadowy way because you want to come off well. Do you still surprise yourself when lustful thoughts cross your mind? Or thoughts of seething hatred still penetrate your mind and heart? Those things shock us still. So we aren't who we were, but, but my friends, we are not yet who we want to be. This shows up in our selfishness. Thank God that we aren't quite as self-centered as we once were. One of the things that marks both Berlin and North Point is that I, I see you consistently pushing outward and, and loving others in, in words and, and in deed. That is a commendable thing. It's a loving, friendly congregation. But yet, aren't all of us still selfish? Aren't all of us still struggling with, with self-love and, and trying to push that down with the hope of the gospel and, and love others from pure hearts? We have, we have a long way to go still. And, and so that's why John writes. He commends them in verses 12 through 14, and he really meant it. And so I can say to you on behalf of the shepherds here in this church that when we think of you, we think of you through the lens of verses 12 through 14. That's who we see you to be. People who are holding fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the very fact that you're here today when you could be doing something else means that you want to grow in holiness. You want to know the Lord Jesus and make much of Him. And you are here because you want to fellowship with the saints. We see you in these ways and we commend you for it. And yet, my brothers and sisters, we have still so far to go. Which brings me back to the little mantra I gave you at the beginning of our time together today. We are complete idiots. Our future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. We aren't who we were, but we have a long way to go. And let me say this to you, and this is important before we move into the text in more detail. If we, if we give people the perception that we've got it all together, and let me tell you, I've been pastoring long enough to know that nobody does. Nobody has it all together. Yours truly, first and foremost. But if we give people the impression that we have it all together, that we never have a bad thought, that we never have seething anger, that we're never selfish, that we never sin, that somehow we've reached this mythical spiritual nirvana, then no one will want to come in here because they know they don't have it together. So we don't have to poor mouth ourselves. We don't have to 
pretend like we struggle with things that we don't, but we do have to be honest. The church is not a museum for the saints, it has been said. The church is much more like a hospital where broken people can be helped. And the truth of the matter is, if we're really being honest, most of you are sitting there today and you know that's true, but you're often afraid to admit it. There are people here who are, who are listening right now who have really broken stories. And they know they don't have it all together. They know they're not perfect mothers. They know they aren't the best fathers. They know they aren't the most loving spouses or the most loyal friends or the most pure worshipers. But they're often afraid to admit that because they're afraid of what people will think of them, and so the game goes on. Let me disabuse you of the notion that you have to do that. None of us have it all together. But because of the gospel, our future is incredibly bright. And anyone, you and me, and others that need to come into this congregation Anyone can get in on this. And so John calls us to to honesty about our sins and to an ongoing warfare against them. The first thing that we see today is that we must be on guard against nurturing misplaced desires for worldly things. John has said here in these verses that we shouldn't love the world. That can be a confusing imperative, a, a confusing command. Aren't we to love the world in some way? Aren't we to love our neighbors? Is it okay to enjoy beauty? One of my favorite things in the world is to take my beautiful wife and go to beautiful places. I love to go see big mountains. I love to go to the ocean. One of my favorite things in the world, when we go to the beach... As once we get the kids tucked in in bed, our kids are older now, we're not just leaving them to the strangers and the wolves, to go to the beach where you can't really see anything and walk along the shoreline and hear the powerful ocean that there's no way you could contain. Or to stand on top of a 14 plus thousand foot mountain in Colorado and see for dozens and dozens and dozens of miles. I've had the opportunity to minister in places like Kenya And to take a couple of days and go on a safari and see elephants and giraffes and crocodiles and hippopotamuses and lions and rhinos. I love to see beautiful things. One of my favorite songs is by Louis Armstrong. I won't sing it in his gravelly voice, although I might get a laugh if I did that, but I won't. You know the song, What a Wonderful World? It's a great song. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and for you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Is there beauty out there to be enjoyed? Is it okay to enjoy drink and and food with friends that you love? Is, Is it appropriate to appreciate the human form? All these things neutrally are good. The problem for us is that we make them ultimate. We make them not a means to an end. The gifts of God that lead us to enjoy Him and worship Him, we make these things the end in and of themselves, and then they became sin for us. Is food to be tasted and enjoyed? Is leisure to be enjoyed? 
our physical romantic relationships, do those offer to us pleasure and joy? All these things, yes, are, are good gifts from God, but when they're divorced from who God is, when they become the end rather than the means to an end, means to enjoying God as the giver of the gifts, when they become ultimate, they become idols. And what John is calling us to hear in this text is, is not to hate everything we see around us, not to be a monastic, not to be a monk, not to live in some sort of strict, weird asceticism, but instead to recognize that there's a difference between enjoying the gifts and worshiping the gifts. So we must be on guard against nurturing misplaced desires for worldly things. How does John want us to understand this? How does he explain it? Well, God rescued us for His glory. Our first parents fell into sin quite willingly, believing that the gifts themselves were the end rather than the means to the end. But God in His mercy has come to rescue us so that we will not worship inferior things, misplacing value on the gifts, rather rescuing us that we might once again worship Him. John in this text mentions the desires of the flesh, verse 16. This is probably the overarching category. Back in my Baptist fundamentalist days, that phrase, the desires of the flesh, was often used to point to sensual things. It could mean that, but that's probably too narrow. It probably means something more like us being arrayed in hostility against God. Like the human army of fallen, willful rebels trying to, to bring warfare against our Creator. The idea is that we don't want to submit to Him. And what happened whenever humanity fell into sin is we took up arms against God, thinking foolishly that somehow we could compete with Him, that we have the right to determine our own destiny. We think things like this, what right does God have to restrain me from whatever I want to do? I have the right to choose my own path, to find satisfaction in whatever way I deem best. God is not good. I have the right, with no fear of repercussion, to disregard His outdated, joy-robbing strictures. You know that word, stricture? It's not a word you hear very commonly in the English language. It carries with it the idea of rules, but the connotation is that they're oppressive. That's how much of our culture thinks about Christianity, that it's full of strictures. The culture I grew up in, the, the fundamentalist culture I grew up in was very much like that. The strictures, of the expectations. People were always peering over your shoulder, making sure that all of your behavior was in line. Very little gospel, very little grace. It was tasteless, which is why I get the heebie-jeebies when I think about it. And yet, still, those of us who are in Christ, all the commendations of 12, verses 12-14 through 14 are true of us, even still, we, we have to recognize that, that we struggle wanting to be God. We have a hard time laying down our weapons and submitting to Him with love and expectation. 
The second two categories are probably subcategories of the first one. So the idea of the desires of the flesh is that humanity wants to be in charge. We, we don't live in natural, humble worship of God. John goes on to give us a couple of examples of that. The first is the desire of the eyes. We covet what we see, whether material goods or illicit pleasure. There was a Scottish pastor, not very well known, named Robert Law, who after the turn of the 20th century wrote a small commentary on 1 John. In regard to the desire of the eyes, he talked about it like this, that we love beauty, but we don't love goodness. You see, it's possible to love beautiful things, nature, people, food, on and on the list could go. But when there's not a corresponding love for goodness, then those things become sin for us. Most of the things that you see the world around you struggling with, the idols that they crave, the things that that they love are not necessarily always bad, but those things that they love have become ultimate for them. And we struggle the same today. We must be careful as the people of God that we love beauty, but we love goodness as well. We, We must have restraint. The second subcategory of the desires of the flesh is pride of life. That's how the ESV puts it. Perhaps you might better translate this more literally, pride in possessions or even in accomplishments. The word here carries the idea of the stuff of life, the stuff you need for life, money and possessions. We have to have those things to survive, shelter and and money to buy the things that we need. The idea seems to be here, not just that John is warning them against arrogance, but the arrogance that arises from the stuff that they have. Because the stuff that we have can possess us. Isn't that interesting? We all feel this. What culture has there been in the course of human history that has had more stuff than us? But our stuff often, if we're not careful, possesses us. And we live in a culture, particularly perhaps in the community in which we live around here, where we often compare ourselves horizontally with what we have. I have this and you don't. I'm better than you. Now, you'd never say that out loud because you know that sounds nasty. Well, that's our clothing or our cars or our homes or our vacations or whatever the case may be. We often use these things as platforms for pride to elevate how we feel about ourselves. Social media has made this far more treacherous here in our culture, right? And if you think I'm going to bash social media, I am. So here we go. (laughs) For most of you, it's not good for you. It leads you to the conclusion that the people you see around you have it all together and you don't. And then how do you feel about yourself? Which then sets you on a course of doing more and more posturing and round and round we go. Now, there are a few of you who can use Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever just so that your parents somewhere in some far-flung place can see pictures of their grandkids. If that's all you're doing, that's fine. But you notice most people on Instagram don't wake up as soon as the morning starts with their hair a mess and eye boogers on their cheeks and post a picture of themselves, right? 
No, we take selfies of ourselves that, that look good. We, we don't take um, pictures and post them on Instagram when we go to Burger King because nobody goes to Burger King in Lewis Center, right? We take pictures of our Valentine's meal where we spent too much money of our steak and potatoes and wine or whatever. We don't take pictures when our kids are on the floor throwing tantrums because that would make us look like bad parents. But after we've gone to crew cuts and bought clothes for our children and had them post them uh, pose in front of an old barn somewhere, which is what Ohio people do, right? Pose our kids in front of old barns. We're always posturing so we come off well. What John warns us against here is the things that we have, the things that we have obtained, they don't define us. If you make a lot of money and you had nice things, that's fine. That doesn't define you. If you wear nice clothes, you have nice shoes or nice handbags, that's fine, but that doesn't define you. If you make less, if you have less nice things, that doesn't define you. And this community is going to be marked by anything. It must be marked by the notion that our identity is in the Lord Jesus, not in what we make and not in what we have. Verse 15 sounds pretty absolute, doesn't it? Do not love the world. It's like never sin. That's what it sounds like. But the grammar in the original text could be translated something more accurately like this. Do not be loving the world. In other words, it's an ongoing battle. We reach certain levels of spiritual maturity, and then we have further and further and further to go. Which means that the youngest listening to me today and the oldest that is listening to me today, we all have progress to make. So I'm going to make you get interactive again today just to, to make you stay awake. Is that true? The youngest and the oldest all have progress to make. Raise your hand if you think that's true. It is true. Some of the youngest people I know have the most vibrant faith possible, and some of the oldest people I know have no faith at all. Conversely, some of the most beautiful people I know in the world are older saints who have walked with Jesus a long time. What is more beautiful than that? And I say to you, one of the things that I'm most excited about in this merger is to take you older saints who have walked with Jesus a long time and partner you with people who are just getting started so you can tell them how great Jesus is. And then to take younger people who are excited about their faith and come along people maybe who think it's a little bit dull and excite you once again. This is an exciting future for our church. One of the questions that arises from this text is this question of the love of the Father. What does he mean by that in the end of verse 15? He commands us to not be loving the world. Again, kind of a literal translation. And then he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What does he mean by that? Does he mean our love for the Father or the Father's love for us? I won't make you vote. The answer is probably yes. One precedes the other. We love him because he first loved us. But the context of this text would lean toward our love for him. So he says, don't, lo don't be loving the world, the, the things of the world that, that aren't ultimate. Don't, don't, don't see the gifts as the ultimate thing. Don't have misplaced values. Instead, you should be loving the Father. But if you love the gifts rather than the giver of the gifts, if you have misplaced values, if you nurture those misplaced values, the question arises, do you really love the Father? And such desires are not from God. 
In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Matthew says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. It's not possible to have split allegiances. In James chapter 4, verse 4, James says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It's that idea of like open hostility. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I won't take time to turn here today for sake of time, but I, I encourage you to spend some time in John chapter 17 because one of the questions that arises whenever you go through a text like this is, should we just isolate ourselves? Should we just find some way to, to withdraw from the world so that we don't ever sin? The early monastics did this, early Christian leaders. The story goes that some of them would go into the desert and build themselves a wooden platform. They wouldn't take any food or water with them. And the only moisture they would have would be the dew that would collect on their beards each morning. They would wring their beards out and sip a little bit of water. And they would meditate and find uh, this sort of spiritual nirvana and worship God. And they would be divorced from all the temptations of the world. You know, the problem with that is most of our problems are within, not without. It didn't work. Jesus does not advocate fearful isolationism. And as conservative Christians who embrace the gospel, we do have to be careful that we don't trend this way. I do see this a bit in our evangelical subculture, this, this craving for isolation, thinking somehow that by isolating ourselves and our children, we can keep the world out. Uh-uh. The world is in your heart. In John chapter 17, Jesus does not advocate fearful isolationism, but missional engagement marked by holiness. This is why he asked the Father, I don't ask that you'll take them out of the world, but you'll keep them while they're in the world. And then he prays that the gospel will be spread generation by generation to those who did not know him personally. Dave read for us earlier from 1 Peter chapter 1. So let's turn there briefly, if you don't mind. In chapter 1, verse 14 of First Peter, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And in chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We don't like to talk about this, but guess what's happening to the world all around us? It's going to hell. What does it need? It needs people who are growing in holiness who are growing in their desires for God over the things of the world, to say to them, there is a better way. But if we don't go out and be among them, leading holy lives for sure, but proclaiming the light of Jesus Christ, how will they know? So there's a missional component to what John is saying here in 1 John chapter 2. We must avoid sinful cravings for our own personal holiness, but, but as we grow in holy cravings, we could say, we have a testimony to this world that, that glorifying God and finding joy are the same thing. 
And too often we as Christians indicate by our actions and by our own cravings that somehow they're divergent paths. Let me explain that for just a moment. We have this notion that we have to choose between two ultimate things, either happiness or pleasing God. In my days of legalism gone by, there was a famous saying. Some of you have heard me say this before. Here's how it went. There's only two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. And I used to buy that. When I was like 17 or 18, I had this notion that that I knew I should worship God, but I really wanted to be happy. So I'd be happy through like my early 20s, and then I'd go worship God. And over time, I realized that these two paths were not divergent paths, but they were one and the same. God calls me to worship Him, and and as I live in fellowship with Him, I find my greatest pleasure. And when we embrace that as the people of God and live that way and proclaim that to the world around us, you have something to say. So we grow in holiness not just for our own personal good, not just for our own flourishing, but for the flourishing of our community around us. So we must be on guard against nurturing misplaced desires for worldly things. God rescued us for His glory. And secondly, as we close the passage, God rescued us that we might have eternal satisfaction in Him. I was just suggesting this, which I think is what verse 17 is indicating to us. And so let me say to you, John is not saying here in this passage, put desire down, try to suppress desire. That's what the monastics were trying to do on their platforms with their long, dewy beards. It doesn't work. You can't put down passion. You can't put down craving. You can't can't suppress desire. God didn't make you that way. God made you with infinite desires which money and food and beauty and leisure and sex cannot satisfy. Only He can satisfy infinite cravings. And one of the great failures of evangelical theology is we've somehow indicated to people that you have to put down desire and choose the discipline of righteousness. That is terrible theology. It doesn't work. It doesn't build long-lasting disciples. You know how you build a long-lasting disciple? By saying to them, your desires are God-given, but don't find them met in the wrong ways. Don't misplace them. Instead, find them in the Creator. And that's what what John is saying to us here in verse 17. The world that you see around us that, that calls for your craving, it's passing away. But if you know God, if you're in fellowship with Him, if you do His will, you will abide forever. The Westminster Catechism, the first question, on purpose, asks this. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. These, my friends, are not divergent calls. They are one and the same. Someone recently in the past few decades has indicated that we should tweak that and say man's chief and highest end is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever that we worship that which we enjoy the most. In Jeremiah chapter 2, let's turn there together briefly. The prophet graphically illustrates this for us. He says at the beginning of the chapter that he has a contention with his people, for they have abandoned him. 
Verse 9, he picks this up in more detail, graphically so. Therefore I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Gadar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people, my covenant people, because I'm the one true God and I've made them my own, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. My friends, that's what we do when we pursue sin. We think it will satisfy us, but it will never slake your thirst. Only fellowship with your Creator can do that. In Psalm 16, verse 11, the psalmist says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And in Proverbs 14, 27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 8, we've already found at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And that's what John is saying here in verse 17. What you see around you, it's passing away. It'll go away. Something better is to come. And you get to be there with Him if you follow Him now. Again, we will not take time to turn here for sake of time. But in Hebrews chapter 11, this is how you find the saints of old living. Not being content with what their eyes saw, but looking to a city whose builder and maker was God. Not willing to participate in the fleeting sins of the world, but believing that there was something better held out to them. So, my friends, when we say no to the illicit pleasures of the world, or perhaps better, misplacing our value in the things of the world, the gifts rather than the giver, we are saying to each other and to the world around us, we're awaiting a city whose builder and maker is God, and that's better. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the end of verse 31, Paul says, for the present form of this world is passing away. And he goes on to say later in 2 Corinthians, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I mentioned to you the mantra earlier from Emmanuel Church in Nashville. That same pastor, his name is Ray Ortland, has a really great saying that I would love for us to adopt here over time. How can we nurture gospel change? Because all of us have progress to make in this text. We all have to grow in our denial of the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions. How do, how do we push back against that? Gospel. In other words, you need the gospel preached to you week after week after week after week. And it might sound the same, but it's what you need week after week after week because you will inevitably trend towards self-righteousness apart from it. So what do we need first? We need gospel. And then what do you need? You need safety. You need to be in a place where you know you're not going to be judged. You know your sins will be addressed, but you know people will be patient with you. And which brings us to the third thing. You need time. Not everybody grows at the same rate. 
So how does a church nurture gospel change? How do we, how do we take a passage like this seriously and, and not dismiss it and not get scared of it and run away from it or not think we have mastery over it, hiding our sin and highlighting the good things about us? How do we do that? We do that by nurturing a culture of gospel plus safety plus time, and then we can all change for the glory of God. So, my friends, we must be on guard against nurturing misplaced desires for worldly things. Our God rescued us for His glory, and He rescued us that we might find eternal satisfaction in Him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will now take this text through the influence and power of your Spirit. You'll make it plain to our minds and our hearts, and that for your glory, and for our joy, and for the good of our community, that you will make it plain to us and to them. So work that in us which we need and which others will need from us, we pray. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's